0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello there and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. I'm going for a walk. How often has this phrase been uttered? We've been bipedal walkers for at least 6 million years, but how many of us really still walk in our everyday lives? Driven by a combination of car-centric culture and an insatiable thirst for productivity and efficiency, we are sitting longer than we ever have before. If bipedal walking is truly what makes our species human, as paleontologists claim, what does it mean that we are designing walking right out of our lives? In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about the loss of walking as an individual and community act and how it has the potential to destroy our deepest spiritual connections, our democratic society, our neighborhoods, and our freedom. But we can change the course of our mobility. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an author who is going to help us with a wealth of science, history, and anecdotes and tell us exactly how walking is essential. To how we think, how we grow, how we socialize, how we move, and how deeply reliant our brains and bodies are on this simple, everyday act. I'm Armin Bratt. We'll start talking about walking and how to incorporate more of it into our lives when positive parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Bratt after this. From the mrdad.com radio network.
1: Okay, forest animals, today is a new day. Kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow. Yes? Have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. Okay, river. Dude. How's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. Perfect for a little riverside shoeless relaxation. Ah, good. Owl, you here? Of course. Who's asking? I am. Look, you know the drill. Sleep during the day, scare the kids at night. Perfect. I love my job. Uh, oak tree? Sup? Still in the same place I left you last year. That's what I like consistency. Well, it's not like I'm going anywhere for the next couple hundred years. I know. I love it. Uh, turtle. Turtle. He's not here yet, man. Uh, He's late every morning. You'd think you would have learned by now to leave the night before our meetings. Okay. Squirrel. Has anybody seen Mr. Squirrel? The forest has been preparing just for you. Visit a forest near you today. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Antonia Malchik, who's the author of A Walking Life, Reclaiming Our Health and Our Freedom One Step at a Time. Antonia, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: So tell us a little bit about why a book on walking, it seems like an unusual topic, given that we don't walk so much anymore. I guess that, I guess (laughs) in a way that answers the question, doesn't it? That's, we should be walking
2: more. It does. Yeah. And, and, and partly also it's, um, it's unusual simply because it's such an ingrained part of our lives that we don't think about it very much, um, or at all, actually. Uh, so I first got interested in the subject when I was living in upstate New York. I'm originally from Montana, but, um, my kids were both born in slightly upstate New York. And... Uh, there was a snowstorm we had this huge snowstorm and there was like six inches of freezing rain the night before and then 24 hours of snow and being from Montana I'm used to snowstorms but um, I had I was pregnant and I had a two and a half year old and my husband was away and it really and the power went out and it really came home to me that I could not get anywhere because the snow was so heavy that all the plows broke down couldn't get out of my driveway um, and I was like, I mean, you know, if my son has an asthma attack, which he had asthma at the time, time and I need to go anywhere, I can't do it. I am completely trapped because I'm completely dependent on getting places in my car. And uh, my father, is, I'm a fifth generation Montana, but my father is from the Soviet Union. And he used to tell us stories about just walking all over the canals and all over the city for hours and hours with his friends. And this was first under Stalin and then after Stalin died, but it was still a very, very politically and socially restricted society and country, And um, but they could talk about forbidden ideas while they were walking. And so I sort of got interested in those two, you know, my lack of freedom to walk with my kids and my father's freedom to walk and think, even in a very restrictive society, and then having children, I, was, I just got very, very interested in the mechanics of walking and the complexity of it. It, it still fascinates me that, you know, mostly our kids learn to walk at some point. You know, they tumble and fall. They take thousands of steps a day. But they learn to do it, and yet it's so complex that the best engineers in the world, the smartest people, have not yet been able to make a robot that is able to just walk in the world yeah. on two legs the way that we do.
0: And it's funny you should mention that because I was just thinking this the other day. My oldest is is 29, and I still have a very strong memory of taking her to this place called all of a sudden I'm blanking on what it's called, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's on the coast of California, very, very windy when she was about maybe a little bit less than a year and a half old. And We were standing on, on the edge of a cliff, not too close to the edge, but, and I was just watching her the way that she was somehow managing to maintain her balance with all the wind that would have been strong enough to knock her over a couple of months before and how all these complex movements that she was making to to stay upright. And then I was looking at your book and thinking, you've got some sections in there about just what you talked about, the, the mechanics of of walking and how do you take one step without falling over completely? Or how do you walk slowly? Or how do you walk fast? It's, it's, it's just it's fascinating that we're able to actually do that. And it's good that we don't have to think about it because if you did, you'd never get anywhere.
2: It's absolutely true. I, I think... Um, one one uh, paper I read said that we our brains go through a billion calculations at least every time we take a step because you're right, it's so complex. Uh, I hadn't actually even thought about wind, but you're right, that's something else that we have to take in. The way the air is moving every time we take a step, we have to take in if there's an obstacle coming towards us, whether it's stationary or whether it's moving, how it's moving, like another person on a sidewalk, for example, um, or crossing a road, engaging how fast a car is coming. Um, and you have these systems, like the vestibular system in the inner ear, that actually detects the gravitational pull of the planet. Because when we're walking, it feels like you might be walking on a flat surface or on a trail, but actually you're on a planet that's moving at 1,000 miles per hour and you have to accommodate that. And um, I just find that mind-blowing. Um, this just fascinates me. Even after two years of researching and writing, I'm just like, wow,
0: it's amazing. How does it play out with people who don't learn to walk early? I know that there's a lot of controversy, and I've written a lot of, about this in my, my books on fatherhood at various points, talking about child development, that there's there's some battles going back and forth between people who say, oh, children need to crawl for as long as possible, and that kids who start walking early some of them don't do as well in math and science, and then other people say, well, kids who walk earlier do better in certain kinds of things. And how, how does learning to walk affect us throughout our lives?
2: That is a very interesting question, and I'm really glad you brought it up. Um, I do talk about one paper in particular that looked at children, infants, who had a vestibular disorders, so that inner ear function, they weren't able to walk very well or very stably in the world because they had disorders in their inner ear. And that can um, show up in all sorts of ways. There's certain illnesses or there might just be like a temporary vestibular loss, like if you get vertigo. Um, and I did find pretty significant links between vestibular disorders and um, later reading comprehension difficulties. Uh, Spatial relations, because when you're walking in the world, the three-dimensional world, you are constantly taking in all of this information about three-dimensional space around you. And if you're not doing that, um, then it it does affect the growth of your hippocampus. But the the people who wrote that paper when I emailed them, um, that was in France, and they said, you know, it's important to remember that some of those differences can be quite small. They're detectable, but they're small. And the kinds of therapies we have nowadays are so much better than they used to be. They can be really targeted uh, with sensory issues, vestibular issues. You can really think carefully about how to help children um, accommodate, uh, you know, or make up for those issues and and make, you know, close those gaps. Um, But it's interesting you brought up the walking versus crawling because I remember when my kids were little, so that was when the big research was around about your children need to crawl more in order for their reading ability to really develop later. And my kids were in early intervention, um, and I'm sure you're familiar with that program. My son was born very premature, and so um, it's a state-run program where you know, you get it for free. You get these therapists to come in. We have physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy. And, you know, my kids are absolutely fine now, but it was, it was wonderfully beneficial at the time. And these therapists told me about that. And they said they think it has to do with, you know, when you're crawling and you're moving your forelimbs. And, again, it helps that hippocampus grow. Um, and I remember my older sister was really worried. This was before I started writing about walking. She was really worried because her oldest daughter never crawled. She went straight to walking um, and she was really, really concerned. And when her daughter was uh, not fluently reading in second grade, um, she oh, has was to very be concerned about yeah. maybe that has something to do with it. And, you know, and now she's just an insanely wonderful reader and a very smart girl. Um, so I, I think it's one of those fields where we're always discovering new things and learning more about the human brain and how the human brain and the human body work together.
0: Yeah, and it's there's no right or wrong answer I don't think. I mean, there's certainly enough evidence on both sides of it that you could just say, you know, you do the best you can. And <clears throat> what are you going to do if your kid wants to crawl for a little while longer? Are you going to drag him up right. and or if your kid wants to walk, you're going to you know, I don't know, what are you going to do? Push <laughs> yeah, him back I, down on the as floor? I said in crawl. The
2: book, my daughter, she didn't walk until 22 months and and there was we tried everything. Um and eventually I just let it go and you know, now she walks and does karate and all sorts of things. And I I do talk about the work of Dr. Karen Adolph, who runs the Infant Research Lab at New York University. And um, she is really firm about understanding when children walk is very much defined by the culture that they're raised in. So she studies walking all over the world. And there are all sorts of different traditions and expectations, kids who walk much later, kids who are free to climb things a whole lot earlier, you know, the kind of thing that would turn my hair grayer (laughs) with worrying about the children. And, And, you know, eventually we all get to that point of walking through the world.
0: I'm talking with Antonia Malchik, who is the author of A Walking Life, Reclaiming Our Health and Our Freedom One Step at a Time. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Antonia. We're going to keep talking about walking, but also something that she calls social capital and the importance of walking as social capital, of staying connected with other people, and also how we as parents can incorporate more of walking into a life that seems to be set up to not walk. I'm Armin Brandt and you're listening to Positive Parenting. In
1: 1977 in Johannesburg, South Africa, an 8-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of 9, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the US and European pro golf tours? 1 in 7 million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
2: It's Practical Poly Radio! I've switched to cooking with healthier oils. So now what do I do with all these tubs of lard? Skinny jeans feeling too tight? A bit of lard on your hips and thighs, and those pants slide on like a dream. So there's no need for that lard to go to waste. But get your best heart-healthy trade-up with healthier oils, like canola, olive, or other vegetable oils, which can actually lower your chances for heart disease. Learn more at heart.org slash face the fats. Canola Info is the national supporter of the American Heart Association's Face the Fats campaign.
1: driving has a rhythm all its own don't wreck it with a text before you get behind the wheel silence your phone or better yet designate a texter for more text free driving tips visit StopTextStopRex.org. brought to you by the ad council and the national highway traffic safety administration
0: welcome back to positive parenting I'm Armand you're just joining us talking with Antonia Malchik the author of A Walking Life Reclaiming Our Health and Our Freedom One Step at a Time you talk about walking as being social capital. What does that mean exactly?
2: Well, social capital uh, came about, the term came about in the early 1900s, but it, what it really means is neighborliness. So it is the the richness of the connections that you have within your community. So say you have a natural disaster. Um, in the book I talked about the heat wave in Chicago in 1995, The researcher who studied that also studied Superstorm Sandy, but um, I live in Montana, so wildfires and wildfire smoke are huge issues. Um, What that means is, you know, you know who needs help. Um, You know who might be able to help you. You know how to get out of your community. But it doesn't have to be just about disasters. That's sort of when the richness of your social capital manifests. But it's those daily interactions, those daily encounters you know, can't? Do you have a neighbor that you can just pop over and borrow a cup of sugar from? I know that doesn't happen so much anymore. Um, do you know who likes to read a book you just heard about? All those daily interactions—they feel really, really inconsequential—but actually, those are the things that make our community fabric really, really strong.
0: I want to actually have you talk a little bit more about the social capital thing because I, I think there's something interesting there that a little bit of a contradiction. There's an obsession that a lot of people have with getting their 10,000 steps a day. And so you would think that that would involve walking. But you see a lot of people getting those 10,000 steps on a treadmill while they're watching TV, as opposed to doing what you're talking about, which is is using walking as a means of connecting with other people. Is there, I mean, obviously there's some health benefit to walking, but it sounds like you would be advocating that there's a mental health component as well.
2: Absolutely. Um, There is a lot of research uh, about the effects of walking on illnesses like depression. If you're dealing with depression, just that daily movement helps a tremendous amount. There is also a growing epidemic of loneliness. Uh, This has been studied over and over, and feeling chronically lonely It's You know, we're evolutionary obligated to be social. We developed in communities, in tribes, and that is how we felt safe. If you got kicked out of your tribe, you were very unlikely to survive. So human beings, like we biologically need to feel connected to other people. So if you feel chronically lonely, that is actually... I think it's almost worse for your health than obesity, if I remember the statistics. Uh, the main researcher on this said it's just as bad as obesity. The only difference is that obesity doesn't make you as miserable as loneliness does. And so, you know, if you're living in a sort of isolated suburb or a gated community, you're driving to the gym, watching the TV or listening to, you know, a show, and getting your 10,000 steps a day in that way, you are getting that, physical benefits, but you are not getting the benefit of the social connection, just interacting with other people briefly, but constantly, and also, say, being out in nature. We do need nature. We need trees. We need um, the kind of calm and attentiveness that green spaces bring us. Um, So it's part of actually why I wanted to write the book in the first place, because To me, walking, it's not just about getting those steps in. It is about all of those other things that a walkable life can bring to individual human beings and to societies. Um, And there's a story I didn't put in the book, and and I'm kind of glad I didn't because it was updated recently, and it was about this man in Los Angeles, which is famously unwalkable who started a people-walking business. So I think at the time it was $7 an hour. You could pay him, and he would walk you places. And he started as a sort of a safety thing, like you want to have an appointment, you want to go across the park, you don't feel safe, he'll be your companion. But he found right at the beginning people were just looking for company. And uh, there, was a, there was an update in the LA Times recently about that, and it's grown into a really big business. He has all sorts of people he employs to be walking partners um, I call them walking partners because otherwise it does Hmm. kind of sound like a dog walking
0: business. Um, It's fascinating. The
2: people walking business, Uh, and and so often the people that they're walking with just want some connection. They just want some. They want to walk through the park. They want to walk down the street. They want someone to chat with about their lives. Hear about someone else's life. Doesn't have to be deep. Doesn't have to be major. But they need that connection.
0: Well, so how do you incorporate as as parents, how do we incorporate walking into our lives, particularly with our kids when the kids, I mean, some of them will ride their bikes to school, but so many kids get rides or they take the bus or some kids are now taking Uber, the thing I never even would have thought would be possible, um, taking Uber to to school and and people don't walk. They just generally don't walk as much as, as we used to when we were kids.
2: Uh, it's absolutely true. Um, it's a huge problem, in part because throughout the 1900s, we built so much of our world to just serve the car. So you have suburbs, you have rural roads that have no sidewalks, no safe places for kids to walk on. Um, you know, I think the answer to this one is kind of a long-term one, and it's kind of vision, a vision that I have. I kind of look at What would I want my community and my society to look like in 30 years? Uh, I would like all kids to be able to walk or bike to school or walk or bike to the bus safely on their own. Um, And that's a long project simply because the infrastructure that we have embedded is so not friendly to that vision. Um, For myself, I did move back into my hometown in Montana. It's a very walkable community Uh, My husband was more interested in having a house further out in the woods, and I said, no, I want to be in town, and that way we can walk places. And he sees the benefit of that now as well because now our kids are pretty independent. They know how to get around town on their own. And it's, uh, I don't know, the difference in how they feel about their lives is really tremendous. And it's interesting. I'll notice even people who live right near where we do, they'll still drive their kids to school. It's about a mile and a quarter away, about a 30-minute walk. Um, And sometimes if our kids are playing around together, I'll offer to walk home with them and their kids will observe that they think they might know where to go from this one part of town to the other that's within a 10 minute walk. And it just amazes me that they have never had the opportunity to develop that geographical sense of place. Just even in this tiny town of 7,000 people, they don't always know exactly where they are because they're used to being driven everywhere. So I think the first thing is for people who can give their kids access to walking is to start making that a priority in their own lives if it's possible. You know, if not, just getting out um, at the weekends or any other time, going for a walk together. We sometimes just go a walk around the block in the um, after dinner, especially when the weather's nicer. So there are a lot of options for that. And, and just to warn everybody, they will whine at first. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, especially if they haven't
2: done it a lot. we're keen on yet. it when yeah. we first started, especially since we'd always driven when we were living in a rural area. They, they did not want to walk. But they adapted pretty quickly, and now they like it.
0: Do you think that people need any kind of special equipment to walk, or can you just do it with whatever you've got on?
2: An advocate for doing it with whatever you've got on. I don't wear special shoes. Um, I have a pair of leather boots that I wear walking. Um, But of course, if you have any kind of mobility issues, then yes, you are going to need mobility aids to walk around. And that's part of where also the rest of society comes in, really thinking about how we design sidewalks, how we design streets, so that if you have the use of a wheelchair, you can walk anywhere that you want to go you shouldn't be limited just because you need a mobility aid Um, but other than that I you know I wear a hat to protect me from the sun Um, we've kind of stockpiled not stockpiled but we we all have you know rain pants and coats and but we also only own one very old car so I think the cost of that is is more than balanced out by getting rid of our second car
0: how do you respond when people say, and I'm sure that they do that it's not safe and you mentioned a couple of things that that our world is set up for cars, and there aren't sidewalks in a lot of places, and we don't want our kids walking through sketchy neighborhoods potentially uh, how mm-hmm. do you How do you deal with that part of it?
2: My view is that you know walking gives us such tremendous gifts, so if you can find ways to just go for a walk in a park after work. Just to give yourself that pleasure, but don't necessarily feel safe with your kids, say, walking across England in Chicago, totally understandable, then you shouldn't have to do that. But I think we do all have to work together on the advocacy side. And I think any issue like this needs people from all angles. It doesn't mean that everybody has to get out and walk
0: Antonia Malchik is the author of A Walking Life Reclaiming Our Health and Our Freedom One Step at a Time. Antonia, thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. If you've got little ones, you know how much gear you need, whether you're planning a walk around the block or a road trip. And it's not just any gear. You're always thinking about cost, size, durability, safety, ease of use, and more. Here are some solid options to consider. We're confident that you'll find them useful. The Dual Fit Harness 2 Booster Seat from Britax. One of the first and most important things to decide on is a car seat. And this seat from Britax is a safe, solid, and reasonably priced option for when your baby outgrows his or her carrier snap-and-go seat. It easily transitions from a three-point harness seat that accommodates kids from 25 to 65 pounds to a booster that goes up to 100 pounds. So the seat will grow right along with your child. According to the... Brightax's patented system of safety components work together to transfer energy away from your child, and two layers of side impact protection shield your child in the event of a crash. With its easy on and easy off lower connectors that lock into place with a click and are released with the push of a button, installation and removal are a breeze. It's about $170. This one and many others are available at us.britax.com. The B Lively Double Stroller from Britax. Britax's B Lively Double Stroller has a lightweight aluminum frame, folds quickly and easily, a necessity for packing up and getting into the car, and provides a nice smooth ride for two. And since Britax knows how much moms and dads have to schlep around, it comes with six storage pockets and a large underseat storage basket, so there's plenty of space for everything. The stroller itself is easy to push and maneuver and is also compatible with your infant car seat when it's paired with an infant car seat adapter kit, which is sold separately. It costs under $400, and you can find out a lot more at us.britax.com. Natural Flow Options Plus Anti-Colic Bottles from Dr. Brown's. Nothing brings a tear to a parent's eye quicker than when their own children are crying. Fortunately, if some of that crying is caused by colic, Dr. Brown's has a number of cool, innovative options that can help. Dr. Brown's bottles have been clinically proven to reduce colic, decrease spit-up, burping, and gas. Plus, they better preserve nutrients in breast milk and formula and aid in digestion for a better night's sleep. All that goes a long way toward explaining why Dr. Browns are the number one pediatrician-recommended and number one-selling bottles in America. Both the Options Plus and anti-colic bottles, which are available in both wide and narrow-neck styles, are designed to make feeding easy and let baby go from breast to bottle and back as needed with no troubles. According to the company, the breast-like nipples on these bottles provides a correctly contoured shape that's flexible at the top and gradually firms, encouraging encouraging a proper latch and more natural bottle feeding experience. All of these bottles and their other products are available at drbrownsbaby.com.